do you, do you show your daughter the one that's smoking a blunt? Yeah, hundred percent. So my PFP smokes, and I got like a four foot by four foot acrylic print uh, in my living room, and there's, it's in the house, it's on the wall. Uh, I guess nothing's forbidden, and then uh, you know, in the Cohen house, away, I think. no, no, she, but she's got her favorite. She likes the gum, the uh, the the rainbow grill, uh, the rainbow tea uh, trait. That's like what she when she like points at my computer, like that's what she wants to see. <laughs> Hi everyone, it's Sam, NFT Statistics, and today we have Ben Cohn, the founder of Killer Bears, on the podcast. Now we've generally focused more on one of one artists on this show, but I thought it'd be interesting to bring someone from the PFP world uh, to talk to. Now PFPs have been through a rough road. The transition to zero royalty, the movement of most of the volume to blur, have both, lo both largely commoditized the work and made it difficult, especially for the middle tier projects to survive. Through all these trials though, whenever I look at my screens, the price of killer bears always seems to be going up. Gone from below one ETH six months ago to now in that three to four range where it seems to stay. They also have a complex ecosystem with many NFTs. They did an open edition and a whole lot more. And through it all, the project has done well with some of the most loyal holders. I wanted to get a sense of what has allowed this project to do so well in this challenging environment. Killer bears was a free mint. Royalties have largely washed away, yet the team continues to thrive continues to succeed and continues to build for the future. Part of it has always been building with a bigger picture in mind for what the brand and what the IP can become with a three to five time year, or three to five year time horizon in the mind of the founders. Ben walks through a lot of this in this video. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi everybody. I am here with Ben Cohn. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad to have you on the show today because I think we're in, uh, we're in a moment right now where people are really questioning the viability of PFP projects and just kind of like the long-term outlook for, for, for PFP NFTs in particular. And I think, uh, you know, I've seen you say a lot how this is the perfect place for you. This is where you want to be devoting your career uh, and you're doing it to a PFP project. So what do, you, what do you think is the bull case here? What do you think is the long-term story for the space in general? I would say that everybody that's questioning PFP is correct to be questioning it. I think what we're seeing now is we're, you know, we're pretty deep into the bear market. And I think finally, we're at this place where a lot of the stuff that happened in the bull market and where it was always destined to go because the teams didn't have the right intentions and they didn't do all the right things. Um, a lot of those projects and, and like the reality is I'm, I'm saying project because I feel that that's what that, what this is kind of the fate of a project is if it's not a business or there's not a, a deeper vision, but I think it's just, there has to be a big rinsing, uh, of PFP projects that didn't have a huge reason to exist other than, you know, NFTs were hot. There was a bull market and founders thought that they could do it. Um, I'm obviously hugely bullish on this space. I think that web three is like, I feel like we're, we're talking like you know, 1996, 1997 internet, you know, before the, you know, the, the bubble happened, not talking about the burst, but the bubble, um, you know, I think we're just so early. And, um, I think that this technology that we have can take us to incredible places. If people understand the value of intellectual property and they have the skills, the team, the resources, the vision to do something with it, you know, for us, uh, we're an entertainment company in the way that, I look at it as if, if you look at um, like Angry Birds, what Angry Birds did was launch an intellectual property, like a media franchise. Um, but instead of launching the traditional way where like a Nickelodeon would go to a room of writers and say, can you guys call up some characters and we're trying to make our next big show. That's a traditional thing. And that takes like years to do that whole, that whole, the distance they have to travel between creating Dora and then Diego and then creating Dora the Explorer and having a pilot a season consumer product, you know, the goods. And then all of a sudden, 20 years later, they finally had a movie. That's actually how long it took for Dora. Angry Birds launched as an iPad game in the early app store. Um, and then, you know, those birds, you can find them in Target now on dog toys, backpacks, water bottles, Netflix. You could find them in the series. They had a, you know, a feature film. 
Um, and I think that for us, we see PFP as similar to Angry Birds launching as an iPad game. It's just a place to start. And then what are you going to do with it? How are you going to grow from there? So uh, if you look just at PFPs, yeah, I think that there's there's like a real fracture going on. And I think it's, it's probably healthy. Um, but the teams and, and, and the collections that have a vision that's much greater, I think uh, PFP is a fantastic way to start. Yeah. So, so Killer Bear is like, it, it's kind of, it's, it's fun art. It kind of has a useful energy mixed with kind of serial killer. It's kind of got this complex <laughs> vibe. You're not sure what you're getting cute or kind of scary, but why, why don't you give us a little bit of the history of, of Killer Bears? Like how did this, how did this project come together? What do you think makes it unique? For sure. So I would say there's two pieces that, 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 that converged. So one is our background as a team. Uh, there's four partners in, in our, in our, in our company here. Three of us have worked together since 2016 with a mobile video game company. Uh, our company was called Umbrella Games and the game, the catalog is still active. We obviously put the catalog under our new company here. That's Web3 Focus. Um, we've worked together for a long time and we've had a lot of success and, and, you know, we, we really respected Web3 and we kind of came into it wanting to learn and wanting to find a way to push the boundaries and use the skills that we had. And then Mimo, our artist, our illustrator had been, you know, for a decade, he had been doing stock art, so drawing illustrations for like high stock, shutter stock, et cetera. And he had found that these bears, not these specific ones that you're looking at, um, but bears um, in his, you know, visual style sold better than other creatures that he was drawing. Uh, and, and he spent a decade perfecting his craft. And, and obviously, as a stock artist, you only make as much money as, as you sell through these sites. So um, things like the gummy that you're looking at, like that's a trait that he developed in his time as a stock artist. Now, what happened was when Mikel, our creative director, and Mimo started talking about you know bringing Mimo on board, um, we obviously had to change Mimo's style to fit into a generative collection because what he was doing was not you know, they couldn't have been NFTs. And, um, you know, I think like they spent about six months kind of with this like coach relationship with Mikel coaching Mimo into how to adjust and adapt his art. And ultimately here, you know, here we are, you're looking at it. Um, a lot of different cool trade groups and, um, you know, no one had done bears. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, we, people seem to like the bears. What's your thought on, on the motion? Uh, there, there aren't that many PFPs that like where their natural state is to be in motion. Yeah. I mean, see, uh, I think animated is cool. I think when you're scrolling through feed, uh, and there's a little, motions don't have any movement. These have movement. I think it's, it's great. Uh, Mikel, uh, creative director, uh, did all of that. Obviously with the game background, there's a lot of animation and games. So he's got that skill and, um, What's cool about the animation on these, I think, is that a lot of people think it's the same like walk cycle where you're seeing it kind of like above the belt. But if you look at like a zombie trait, uh, the zombie as a fur, uh, the arms, uh, they move differently. Um, yeah, like if you look at a green zombie. Um, see, yeah. it's like, <laughs> and like there's little nuances and, and like that, that attention to details, you know, it's all, uh, Mikel and Mimo, uh, you know, thinking through like the little intricacies of all of this. When you think of it, who do you think of as the target market for this art? Like, it feels like it's, it feels like there's a very specific demographic that kind of feels drawn to this. And I'm, I'm curious what, if that's true and who that is. I don't know. I, I try not to make too many assumptions. Um, you know, we're not going after like a young kid's market. I, I think we're going a little, a little older. Um, but like then again, I have, three kids and even my two-year-old like you know comes to talk to me about killer bears in her two-year-old kind of language but uh it's definitely older i think you're, you're looking more at like a family guy uh sort of demo um ted demo do you do you show your daughter the one that's smoking a blunt yeah 100 percent. so my pfp smokes and i got like a four foot by four foot acrylic print uh in my living room and there's it's in the house. It's on the wall. Uh, I guess nothing's forbidden. And then, uh, you know, in the Cohen house, away, I think. No, Fair no, enough. She, but she's got her favorite. She likes the gum, the, uh, 
the the rainbow grill, uh, the rainbow tea uh, trait. That's like what she when she like points at my computer, like that's what she wants to see. Yeah, that's a cool trait. I think like I think the apes made that big. Did you guys try to model your traits after other? You know, Rainbow Girl, if I'm thinking of the same one, is like it, it is a board ape trait. Like, what was the goal to do a bunch of head nods to some of the kind of legendary traits? I wasn't personally too involved in the creative side of things. I think that um, probably there ha the thing is you have to make so many different traits um, to make a collection happen. Um, I don't think that we spent much time looking at uh, ape punks, you know, the, the, the Titans before us. But I, I imagine that you can't really make a PFP collection without borrowing some ideas from the others. But uh, yeah, I, was, I wasn't that involved in all that. Yeah, I think that borrowing process actually is, it, it strengthens a collection. Like if you have, there are people out there who just love 3D glasses and you at least want to give them a reason to look at your collection. You kind of give that head nod to the, to the space in general. For sure. I'm, I'm with you on that. There's people that that's like their thing. Like they only buy Rainbow Grill or they only buy Pink or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So what, um, one of the things that I think is interesting about your project in particular is that it's held up really, really well. You know, we've been in this process where I feel like so many NFTs have either gone, you know, have, the, the three ETH NFTs are now worth less than one ETH. The 15 ETH NFTs are now worth five ETH, you know, but I feel like Killer Bear is, you know, is up over the past six months and yeah, obviously it's come down a little bit, but what do you think it is about the project that has allowed it to perform pretty well? Uh, I, I, I think, um, we have focused a lot on entertainment. I think we always kind of hammer it into our, uh, holders heads. Like we're an entertainment company. Our job is to entertain you guys, make this fun. And our value, our focus is on driving value back to you with entertainment with fun, with, with value and protecting the ETH that you've invested and growing it. But. I think we have, we have done a good job as far as like ecosystem design, uh, which is not too dissimilar from how mobile video games work, where, um, you've got to think about kind of the full picture, um, on how the supply, you know, the economics of them, how they all interrelate. Uh, it's, it actually reminds me a lot of how, um, we have to deal with video games with retention curves, rewarding gameplay, but not too much. Uh, making it hard, uh, making it engaging. So I think that um, we've also shown a pretty grand vision. And um, I just think our holders are having fun and and, and uh, they've enjoyed, they've stuck by us. We've, we've, we've delivered a lot of value back to them outside of just uh, the core collection, um, the Killer Bear OGs. And uh, I think they've appreciated it. They've, they've been loud, proud, diamond handed and have brought in their friends and I think everybody kind of expects that we're going to grow a lot more so you know people are sticking with us one of the things I'm always curious about is I feel like there's this tension between keeping things interesting and exciting for your collectors uh, but you also need it to be simple enough that someone like me will want to buy and when I say right. someone like me I mean someone who doesn't I don't want to learn about an entire ecosystem. I don't want to feel like if I miss a discord message, I might not get the free money you're dropping. <laughs> yeah. You know, how, how do you generally, how, how do you see that balance in terms of catering to your current users and giving them the entertainment, but also creating an environment where, where new people feel like they want to be part of what you're doing and that there's not a big barrier to entry. Yeah, I think it's a tricky balance. I think it's, it's, it's always up to the holder. So there's people that have, they're, they're so deeply involved and interested in the killer bears that they don't miss an announcement. They play the game. And this whole thing is kind of a little bit of a game, the act of collecting in our ecosystem. They know every detail about everything. And they're, they're maximizing and they're, they're repositioning constantly. And for them, it's really fun. It's a strategy game that's as involved as they want it to be. Um, and then there's people that just want to buy a couple bears and have exposure to the ecosystem and take a 10-year bet. Um, Either way, we're cool with it. I think, um, you know, we're pretty, pretty, uh, focused on just meeting holders where they are. And I think for everybody, for someone that's really actively involved, they want, you know, we've made, we've given them a lot to chew on for someone that just wants to be passive, see a video here or there and, and buy what they like. I think it's also a good environment for them, but, uh, Web3 is tricky. I mean, you know, holders have demands, you know, they, they want to be entertained. They want information. They want communication. They want value back. 
They want to feel like their bag is growing. Uh, they want to see that this 10-year vision is being worked on now, uh, but also they want like a three-day vision. These are like not easy things at all to work together. I think we've done about as well as you can with it, but it's it's a tricky population to satisfy, that's for sure. What is that 10-year vision? What's the 10-year vision for holding one of these? I think it's a lot like how Angry Birds has, has developed. I think you'll see us film, television, consumer product, you know, Mikhail always says, our, our creative director, until we have a whole aisle in Target with product that's spread the killer bears, we won't stop. So, um, you know, and a lot of that is how can you drive value back to the holder, you know, with licensing and there's different creative ways that we've already started working on things like that. And, and uh, you know, we were, we were a free mint. So we were given a huge opportunity, you know, in uh, last April when uh, we wouldn't have minted out paid if we wanted. So our whole thing is, is like, what can we do to, to support and, and show love back to the community that gave us a chance here. And, uh, as we grow into that 10 year vision, we want to make sure that the holder feels that they're one part of it, but also entertained by it, uh, and like the biggest scale possible. What does, when you say we want to be like angry birds, like, I don't know enough about angry birds to know what that even means. Uh, what are the things angry birds has that you think killer bears is going to have over the next five to 10 years? Like what are, what are the concrete uh, yeah. deliverables that you think people can expect? We'll have a movie. We'll have an animated television series. Uh, we'll be online. We're already doing some e-commerce, but we'll, we'll be online, probably retail as well. And, um, you know, we're, we're a game company. Uh, we're actually like one of the only real game companies that are, that's in this space, this game, game focused prior. Um, you know, so all these things will be, will be out there for sure. Um, why, why don't we dive a little bit into your past? What, uh, I know that you've, you, you mentioned you've had some history in the video game space. Um, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were doing before you kind of stumbled into web three and, and, and made this into your career? For sure. Uh, I think I've had a pretty, uh, fun uh journey in the internet uh industry i think i was lucky that i didn't uh, have any success in the corporate world when i was 21 and 22 um and you know at 23 i finally kind of bit the bullet I was like I'm, I'm done with these big companies i'm gonna go work in the new york startup scene and i got a job at a small mobile app studio doing business development long story short i ultimately had some success there and then moved and opened my own app studio and um, you know, I sold that company when I was 26 and, um, that was when I started making my own apps and, uh, I ultimately wanted to kind of be vertically integrated. So I started marketing my apps on, uh, Instagram meme pages. So I've made an app called Wentagram, like when to post on Instagram. And uh, that was supposed to be the first of many of these types of apps and, uh, Distribution is kind of the, the, the tricky thing with, with apps and games, you know, on the app store. And ultimately I had found that that worked really well. And I started buying up a lot of these Instagram pages from these, these influencers and, uh, getting a ton of installs. And this is when the video game thing happened. My friend, Mikel was our, you know, my partner now was like, let's do something because we have really good games, but we need more players. So we, we made a deal and I you know, joined as a partner there. And, and at the same time, I was rebranding a lot of these pages I was buying to mimic how like a traditional uh, publishing house would work. You know, like a Hearst or a company asked, you know, they've got, you know, the, the, the 17 magazine or the Cosmo, they've got Bon Appetit or Delish for the food property. So I was basically mimicking these Instagram properties around a media company like that. And at the same time, um, you know, promoting apps and video games on those. And ultimately I sold that bit, that business was called Scopus Media. We had about 17 million subscribers on the Instagram portfolio, uh, at the end of the thing. And then, yeah, I focused all on video games, uh, with Mikel and Bean, uh, with umbrella games and, and, uh, there's been some SAS, there's been some e-com and I've kind of touched most of the corners of the internet world. By now, uh, 35 now. So it's been, you know, 12, 12 and a half years. But uh, Web3, you know, I didn't really want to do it, uh, truthfully. The, the story is uh, my relationship with crypto hasn't been great. Um, you know, when I was 
26, I bought a bunch of Bitcoin. Uh, this was 2014, 2013, excuse me. And uh, that was right before the Mt. Gox hack. And I was lucky to not be, I was, I was lucky to be in Coinbase at the time, but yeah, I, I exited, you know, with paper hands about a year later and I didn't really make anything at all. And obviously Bitcoin went, that was like $600 per. So I got to enjoy watching in the news, Bitcoin literally moon in front of me when I had like a ton of Bitcoin and, and then I was a little late with top shot. I got into that, I had, you know, one that went well, and then I kind of aped in pretty heavily and I was like the top six <laughs> and, um, and then they approached me, they were like, I think we should just pivot, you know, I think we should just focus here on, on doing killer bears. And, uh, at this point, I think I like was mature and old enough to know that like, I wasn't a good trader. I wasn't a good trader with stocks. Certainly wasn't with crypto. I wasn't with, uh, top shot either, but as an operator, I had had a lot of success. So, uh, I went for it. Cool. And, and having had your experience in gaming in here, what do, what do you think are like the key differences, uh, to think about between like a gaming audience and, and, and web three or NFTs, there's one critical, huge, huge, huge difference. It's in games. We call them players or we call them users. And the reason is but they're generally anonymous. We don't know who they are. Uh, we don't even know like, who they are on social media, but you just, you review who they are by the numbers. You're looking at like all the analytics, uh, and that's how you judge them as, as, you know, as players and, and, and judge your game as well. NFT, uh, the feedback loop is immediate, uh, because everybody's on Twitter or discord and, you know, you make one announcement within 30 seconds, you know, the reception of it. Um, whereas in a game, you might like need to like get like to get like statistical relevance, uh, on something you're curious about. You might need like 10,000 users and you might have to wait some time for them to get to level X to find out if the game is well balanced and the difficulty is right. And in NFT, in our ecosystem, we know immediately, um, you know, so that, that, and, and like that feedback loop is, is what makes it so interesting, um, in good and bad ways. Um, you're, you you're, you're a community is literally right there. Yeah. Do, do you think that it is, is the marketing chat? How, how is marketing different in, in one verse? I mean, one thing I'll often think about with NFTs is it's very hard to, to market like a, you know, you could who are you going after? And like, you know, at the end of the day, it feels like there's a lot of just relying on your community to do your marketing for you. But right. how, how have you seen the, the, those marketing channels different? The marketing channel is really different. I mean, for games, like where we marketed, we, we did some social media marketing with like my pages and, and some influencers out there. Uh, we did a lot of paid marketing through ad networks and social media. Um, like, you know, you buy Facebook ads and, and Instagram ads and, you know, you do that whole ROAS thing and, um, you rely a lot on the platform and, you know, like is Apple or Google going to give you like a front page feature, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, uh, obviously network effect, like, can you get players to invite people in? They could earn more rewards in NFT. And, and by the way, the gaming market is massive. I don't know how many people play games on a daily basis, but like the daily actives on like the app store. And even console games is like a huge number. Uh, Web three, I don't even know if we have like a million daily active. I actually think we're 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 probably in like like the fifty thousand like daily active users on like an open sea or blur. Probably less actually. Um, but as far as how we market, you know, we have to be realistic. We have a really small community of people that are receptive to NFTs. Most people they don't want to hear about it, so they don't even know what it is. So most of the marketing is definitely community focus. What I would say is important is that the, the founding team arms the community with a lot of good content to, to, to promote out there. I think that's been one of the keys to our success is, you know, that we've given them a lot to talk about, uh, on Twitter and discord, but I mean, it's still such early days in NFT. I think, you know, as we get more wide adoption, I think the marketing will get more uh, mainstream to how, you know, we market in e-commerce and SaaS, uh, for sure. What do you think are the keys right now? I, I think there's like a bit of a tension in the NFT space between 
I, yeah, I've heard fr uh, Frank from D gods talk about how the way to grow the space is to make your holders as happy and as proud and, and as much of an evangelist as possible. And then I think kind of, you also have projects like doodles, which are talking about how they want to grow and be, you know, a mainstream brand like Disney and kind of more in that space and just get, get widespread popularity that way. Like what, what's your take on, I almost say, I think we have a problem in like, like in the sense that unique buyers of NFTs has gone down for six months. Um, it, it is really hard to get people on board. And what's your take kind of being on the inside of a project as you are? I think they're both right. Um, I think Frank is right in that you need your kind of core supporters to really be pumped and tell the world about you. I, I do think that that's important. And, and, and I think he's done a great job of that. He's a brilliant marketer. And I think uh, Doodles is right too. I think the Doodles approach to moving to flow and, and you know, will it, will it work? I don't know. Um, but they're trying to go after a much larger audience where, you know, flow is much easier to deal with. You don't have MetaMask. You don't have a lot of these issues. You're just using a credit or debit card. And I understand the point of view. They're trying to just get more people into the ecosystem. I think everybody's right. I think ultimately there's probably only going to be a handful uh, that started as PFPs that are going to be able to make that successful jump into, into the, you know, call it, will they exist three years from now in a big way or five years from now? I think there's, there's not room for a ton of us, but if the intellectual property is good enough and, um, the strategy to kind of bridge the gap between web two and web three makes sense. I think you, you can have a, you can have a, you can have a Disney for sure. There could, there could be a few. I think that we always say that like, you know, we, you know, we have our vision. The next Marvel universe will not be created by a legacy media company. I think it will be created by somebody in this space. Uh, somebody's got to do it though. Somebody has to do it. It's going to be hard, but like somebody will do it. And, and, and what else have you learned? Like what, what have been kind of the big lessons having been in this, been doing what you're doing for a year now, things you would teach yourself a year ago, mistakes you've made. Well, what does that conversation with, with your year ago self look like as far as what to do, uh, do differently and what to kind of double down on? Uh, I hadn't thought much about it. I mean, the thing is the whole thing moves so fast and we've had the, the, the good fortune of kind of growing at a pretty healthy rate that we haven't stopped to think about kind of post-mortem sort of thoughts. Like what, what could we change? I think, I think we figured out the storytelling uh, and lore and how we deliver and disseminate information communications that took a, about in the summer. I wish we had figured that out a little bit earlier, but we really couldn't have, we needed to like experiment and find our voice and our style a little bit. But, um, I think that the economics need to be considered more heavily by basically everybody. Um, because that's where I see most collections running into trouble and, um, I, you know, like I've had to eat like my own humble pie and know that I'm not the smartest guy in the room and, and turn to people in our community or, or you know, people that I, I think that know something that, that I don't and ask for help and say like, well, you know, we were thinking about doing this. What, what do you think about it? And being really open, especially with the community, there's a few community members that have some really specialized experience and they obviously are rooting for the kill bears to win, like they're, they're bag holders. So to go to them and say like, Hey, like here's kind of a rough draft of what I was thinking of doing. Uh, do you have any thoughts and to make sure that did, did, did we miss something Did we have a blind spot or not? Um, I wish that more would do that. And I, you know, like we, we do it for like pretty much every, everything that we do, we make sure that like, that everybody kind of agrees that it's going to work out. Um, and it's, it's, it's been good, but I think one day I'll go on vacation, take a couple of days off. Twitter and Discord, and I'll think about, you know, how did this year go, and and what what could we have changed and done better? But we're we're really uh, really in tune with the community and trying to do the right thing every day. And how how do you deal with kind of that community interaction piece? I feel like there are a couple. I think we've seen instances of founders getting kind of into confrontational situations with their communities. I, maybe the fact that your price has has stayed pretty strong and you haven't had those downturns has made it easier for you to not have to cross that bridge, but I'm sure that it hasn't all been super smooth. What, how do you personally, what's your personal approach to Twitter, to interacting with your community, to interacting in discord, keeping things mysterious while getting the feedback, right? Uh, get, you know, all, all, all those types of questions. The way I deal with it is to deal with it head on and be very available and accessible. 
obviously that is not always easy. Like it's pretty overwhelming that some people have my phone number and, 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 you know, if you answer somebody once in a DM, you've basically invited them to DM you again. Um, so I get overloaded with communication. It's pretty hard to keep up with it, but I think that that, that, that accessibility has given people a lot of confidence, um, training holders to be patient and, uh, is our job, you know, like, how do you get holders to stay relaxed and, 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 and not want to sell and not want to exit? If you show them a really big vision in the future and how they can be along for the ride and you do enough to entertain them and drive value back to them in the short term, you kind of have what Killing Bears has been, uh, a pretty steady climb and, uh, but it's, it's, founders need to be a few things. They need to be doxxed. Um, they need to be communicating. They don't need to be like me where they're in DM every single day, Discord every single day, like a friend to the community. It's been fun, but it's overwhelming at times. But they need to be kind of regularly making themselves heard. Um, and they've got to show holders respect on, on a couple of things. One is thank you for spending your time in our community and, and kind of spreading the word and, and onboarding people and doing whatever they do and respect the ETH that they've put into the collection. At least try your best to preserve it or grow it. Um, all you have to do is, is just try. Um, everybody knows that this is a risky thing, and uh, but I think that you, know, you can't take that responsibility lightly. Uh, people's time and people's ETH um, you got to try your best and communication goes a long, long way. Yeah. I, I think that that is a, it, it's just something that always hurts to see is like people not realizing that people are putting their family's savings and their hard earned money into these collections. And I think the way you describe that, like just respect that, respect that this is something that people care a lot about. And uh, you know, it's, it's both tied to their identity, but it's also tied to their financial well being and, and kind of realizing that, uh, that's not something to take lightly. Obviously it's risky and you can't control the future, but sometimes it, it always, I always find it disappointing when there, when there's a confrontational relationship between projects and founders, cause it really like it could kick projects and, and, and holders. Cause the holders, the community, you know, has a lot riding on it. Yeah. I think like a lot of times, like, and I can't get away from these things live on the internet. Like, you know, I go on Twitter and if there's such confrontation and there's been several lately, like I see the the transcript and in my mind I'm saying like all they had to do was like get off their phone or computer and take a walk around like the block and like take a deep breath and they would have avoided like a whole thing. Uh, and this happened, this is not like only like the last like few weeks, like this is since I've been on here for a year. Um, you know, the holders, you got you got to respect, you got to respect them. Um, you know, you got to, we all work together kind of a thing. And we all feel we're on the same team and we're all wrong in the same direction. We can go a basic places. But if you don't have that feeling in a community where there's like a real like uh, fracture between the team and the community, I think you're asking for it. Uh, it could be yeah. ugly. Yeah. Um, hi, I mean, you guys did the free mint, presumably, you know, well, uh, the, the way that ultimately you, you make revenues to royalties and obviously we're, we're in an environment where royalties are basically kind of half of 1%. That's basically where we've gone. I haven't, yeah. I haven't looked at Killer Bear's royalties yet, but I imagine it's somewhere between half of 1% and 1% if it's kind of followed where most of the market is. How, how have you adjusted to that? What's, uh, how, how does that change your vision for your own future? It doesn't change at all. Uh, you know, we've, already, we've got a video game company that's still operating. We've, you know, one of the reasons why we could do a free mint and not have a fat treasury to, to operate was we already had income from games that we've made, you know, years ago. Um, so we already were a business and so you mean royalty revenue that just continues to come in from games you or, or download and install, yeah, you know, yeah, in, it's, it's in, not, in, in game. Right. It's not royalties. It's, it's, you know, in-app purchase and ad network, uh, revenues. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, that's been pretty good. And, and, uh, you know, we obviously did earn a lot of royalties, uh, until kind of this blur thing went down and, um, we had an open edition, which was, which was, which was pretty killer. And, uh, we're, we're focusing on, you know, a lot of web two businesses that are, you know, that are, that are totally uh, part of what we're doing here. And, uh, you know, so, so, you know, it doesn't really, 
affect us at all. I think ultimately these marketplaces, you know, something will, something will have to shake out here. I do think royalties are important. I don't know if this whole thing has been bad. I think it might be actually very good for the space. But uh, I think, you know, the thing with royalties, I always, like when, when people ask about philosophically feeling is um, a market without marketplaces is inefficient and clunky. So if we didn't have OpenSea, we didn't have Blur, uh, you could still transact, right? Like CryptoPunks, for example, like you can still, you know, they don't, you know, you can only buy them on those, but, but you can still buy them. Uh, a marketplace without creators doesn't exist. So I think you have this odd situation where if you don't respect the, the creators, you got nothing. So we have to find a happy medium and I'm sure we will one day. What, what, when you say, when you say you think it's nice to hear you say, you think this could be a good thing. And I, I'd love, you know, from a creator perspective, I'd love to hear like what that, what that, what that looks like, what, what's the optimistic case. Here? I mean, I've seen like, you know, so the way I operate is I, I talk to a lot of the holders. So there's a lot of holders that come to us where like, they're, they're done with NFTs. They're like, they're like, this is my last one. Like I heard it was great. I heard it was different. I've had like seven rugs. Like I have lost a fortune. Like this is my last one. If this doesn't work out, I'm out of here. And when I, as you get to know these people and you start to hear secondhand about a lot of the projects that they were in, um, these, some of these founders made a ton of money on royalties and they had awful intentions. They never tried. Um, and we can't really reward that. Like, that's not right. Like that is not fair. And a lot of people have lost a ton to people that have made millions with awful intentions. So I think on one side, like, like, do we deserve the royalties that we get? Yes. Like we're working nonstop. We have great intentions. We've done so much for the community uh, in terms of giving things back, but then there's other teams that have not, and it's hard to justify them collecting a royalty. And I think this whole situation that's going on is rinsing out a lot of that stuff. Yeah. I, I mean, it is, it is a side that doesn't often, and I, I don't even think it's always bad intentions. It's just sometimes the economic balance does, has felt off in the past. There's, right. There's been something like $2 billion of royalties paid just in the past two years to creators. I mean, it's an absolutely massive number and that's just on the big exchanges, not including like art sales and whatnot. So, right. you know, and in a lot of cases, those NFTs went to nothing. You know, and I, I do think there was, I think some of that frustration that holders had was justified. Like it probably is not the ideal scenario that if you buy an NFT for five ETH and sell it for 0.3 ETH, uh, that, you know, they, that was the agreement when you bought the five ETH NFT, like that was yes. part of the deal. So it's not, you know, nothing in part of the risk, but I, I agree with you that the way things have been in the past probably wasn't optimal. It was kind of where we landed and maybe now we'll see a chance to, to rethink a, a, a bit of that and figure out where we belong. One last thing I kind of want to get your thoughts on is the, is the open edition. Uh, you, you were one of the very first projects to do an open edition. Um, you know, it was something that a lot of artists were doing and I think the floor price is still up above, uh, where you launched it at, you know, what, uh, what, what, what was the key to success there? What was the thinking there that, that made that, uh, something you wanted to do and then something that worked out so well. So, um, I, it was the most fun experience. Basically I was buying on manifold, some open editions. Uh, cause I could see that it was like a hot, it, it was a meta. Um, and we have this issue with killer bears. It's that the floor price is kind of high. So, and we have a small collection, so it's, it's not easy, but there's a lot of people that are killer bear curious, but they can't, they're totally priced out. So we said, all right, well, let's try to get a few things in order. And if we can thread this needle, it'll, it'll be fantastic. So one, we would be the first NFT collection to do an open edition. We're not going to do it on Manifold. We're going to do it on our own min site and we're going to have full control and we're going to make it like a fully killer bear experience. Entertainment, you know, like, you know, like storytelling, like all that stuff. Um, and we're going to make it priced really well so all of Web3 can enjoy it. And we're going to celebrate, uh, you know, our artist Memo. But the final thing was, and the reason why I think the floors have gone up is we're going to make this like a junior and a light version of the Killabear ecosystem so that people that are Killabear curious, but don't want to spend whatever, you know, three years or whatever can get a taste for what, like what we do, you know, and that's immersive and interactive experiences, uh, through storytelling. And, you know, if you go onto like the burn site to burn, you know, 64 volume ones to get 32 volume twos, 
you'll say like, damn, this is nice. This site is smooth as glass. The animation was great. So we thought like all of those different pieces together, if we could marry them all into one, it would be a really fun experience. And uh, it's, it's certainly, you know, like those gold ones you're seeing on the side, those were surprises. No one knew that those were going to come. Those, if you filled out a full burn card, you get these gold ones for free. Uh, is it volume 69? Yeah. <laughs> 420. Uh, yeah. For, for the culture, as everything. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, open edition, the, the meta didn't last long. We knew we had to move quickly. Uh, from the day that we decided to do it to the launch was uh, six days. It, one thing I always feel when I see these open editions, and I'm trying to wrestle with this in my head, so I, I'd love to get your take, is I feel like they, and this is, I, I have not dug super deep into Killer Bear's open edition, but I feel like they create this gamification that gives people dopamine hits and gives people excitement over the near term. It's like, if I take two blue ones, maybe I'll get a red one, you know? And if I take two red ones, ultimately I'll get a green one. And there's kind of this process where people want to be part of that game, but then eventually the, the, the price points for these just end up way too high, you know? And you can't keep that gamification and that excitement going on forever. Attention focuses elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like a lot of times like they're fun while they last, but I wonder how these can be decent investments over the long term. And I'm I'm curious your take on that. Like, is is that even the point? Like, is the point just to enjoy the ride while you're at it? And then these aren't great long term investments. Or do you think these actually are decent long term investments? Yeah. So so we so a lot, the problem is there's there there's most of the open editions that exist are from artists that don't have like an ecosystem to connect these open editions to. So they live alone on this island, and once the hype ends, it's just kind of game over and everyone's got to go home. Uh, we have an actual ecosystem to connect this to. So we have this thing called the burn market, which is going to be focused on our killer cub it, uh, collection, which isn't out yet. The mint is uh, in just about a month. Um, but these cubs that people are going to get are nude and, uh, or, or, you know, like they're going to be kind of pregenerated, but the, the traits that go on them are going to be up to the user. So, one thing that people do know is that we're going to in this burn market that we're going to have the open editions can be burned and there's a currency you know all of that you know the volume ones are worth x volume two are worth a little bit more you know it's it's a uh, you know one point three point and then volume three is eight points um you know those are going to be redeemed for for traits people can you know so that's kind of the, the point is that this and then obviously the supply here went from fifty thousand to 19,000. Uh, it's open edition. So the supply will go down and down and down. So the burning has worked. To... Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, and, the, so the burning has have been effective. It's been, yeah. It, but, we, you know, the thing is, is, before we put this out, we, we like went through every scenario, similar to how we do in our core ecosystem and said, if this happens, what happens here? And, and then, you know, we did all of the, the, the mental gymnastics to figure out the, the math around it. And the burn market um, is how we connect this to the core ecosystem so um yeah i mean the, one of the big motivations was um you know we hadn't gotten like a lot of like influencer love in nft for whatever reason um and, but we we felt like we didn't need it because if we did a really good job with the open edition we could kind of make this like a farm system like you know minor league you know like uh you have people that enter through the open editions they they like what they see they like the team they like all of what we do and they buy killer bits, they buy killer bears. It's happened quite a lot, like almost every day since, since the mint. Um, you know, so it, it's another way to onboard people into the core ecosystem as well. Yeah. So a couple of last things just to, to close with what, um, yeah, I, I think the vision of building a big entertainment company is very interesting. And I think, you know, and I think there's kind of this leap of faith that we make that ultimately if a brand is big, it will accrue value to the original NFT holders. You know, it's like you, you build this brand and then suddenly the original NFT hold, the original NFTs are now worth $5,000 or worth $10,000 or they've doubled in price or they go up over time. Uh, how much confidence do you have in that? What do you think is, what do you think is the mechanism ultimately that makes those original NFTs worth a lot over time, even if you're successful building a brand? I, I think that's definitely the thesis and I imagine it to be true. Um, because, you know, the more exposure you're able to get for a brand, suppose you're, you know, a household name, the people dig into the intellectual property, they want to learn more. 
And ultimately they figure out, oh my God, this launched as an NFT. And they go through their research and they find out that there's only X of X many of them and they, they want to get one. Um, you know, that, that, that at scale, uh, will, will push prices up. Um, but you've got to do, you've got to get there, got to get to the point where, um, have global awareness and people have, a, you've done a good enough job to get people to be curious about how this all started. Um, like I always think like family guy, which is something I watched a lot, suppose times were different and, and that show came out next year and it was based on, you know, a bull market NFT man, right? So you have family guy and like, imagine you, you mid to the bot Stewie, right? And the project team had this vision to make this inappropriate TV show for like, teenagers and up, and they go to you and say, uh, one, like you'll get the licensing deal, but you know, like th that's going to change your life for sure. And people will be like, I could own Stewie, right? Like we have, we have with NFT, we have the chance, like, you know, this IP is going to be out there. Some teams are going to do more with it than others. But, um, I think that journey is interesting for people. So do you think it's a cash flow story? Like you own the IP in a certain way, or do you think it's more kind of where we've been? which is just this like branding, like I own this collectible that the team has made originally unique on the blockchain and no one else can own it. Which of those mechanisms do you think really kind of you need, is the driver? You need to do both. You need, you, need to, you need to lavish your community with licensing deals for sure and, and bring them along for the ride because like they own the actual IP. We have the brand, right? Kill our brand and, and the storyline and all that, but the bears are theirs. Um, so I think you need, and you need to find unique ways to, not single out like three or four people and you need to find a way to get in wholesale like trade groups licensing deals and uh but at the same time it's our responsibility to make the brand really big um and that will so you need to do both uh is what it, i'm saying it does seem hard like i can't think of any shows with three thousand characters right you got three thousand. No, definitely not you know but like think about this like think about this okay so everybody knows we're working on a movie uh you know with seth green common knowledge in, in the space. Um, suppose there's 10 characters in the show that are killer bears. Sorry, in the film. Um, suppose you've got the, the you know, the, the cheetah fur, the, the 3D glasses. You get where I'm going, right? Uh -huh. So instead of singling out like you and your single bear, how can we maybe think about the trait group, like the dominant trait of this character? Suppose there's 65 people in our 65 holders with uh, the cheetah fur trait. What if the royalties from a film go to one wallet, like the, you know, the, you know, like that designated to like the cheetah, you know, like their piece of the pie, and then those 65 people decide what to do with with those funds, um, versus like you and your single one being lavished with a, a monster deal. Um, I think that that's kind of interesting thing to think about because with licensing and NFT so far, there's just winners and losers. And like we've experienced it because we've done, you know, four license deals already and there was four winners and there was like 2000 losers. So four winners, you mean four NFTs that got access to those cash flows? Yeah. Yeah. And did they, how, how much, how much money actually was returned to the NFT holders? Oh, and we haven't launched the thing yet. We're doing killer toys. Uh, and we had the community vote on, uh, you know, the community voted on which IP was going to be the ones to get made in the first run. And uh, no, but they're going to make significantly. It's it's going to be quite a lot for those for those four. And yeah, the, those toy are those toys just going to be like toys that I can buy at Toys R Us, or what's going to be the distribution channel? Uh, no, they're going to be really limited, very collectible. Um, I wish I, I have them upstairs uh, in the house, uh, some prototypes, but. Uh, uh, if you go to killerbears.com, there's a section that'll show you, uh, might be interesting to look at now, but, uh, no, I mean, it'll be a, a mint and, um, there's a lot of surprises within the mint. Uh, and then ultimately at the end, you'll take delivery, uh, you know, to your home for, for one of these, it's a, fidget, a very digital, uh, experience. Okay. Got it. Got it. Cool. And uh, you say more about the movie. Sorry. I, I said last couple of questions, but I did. You mentioned the movie and I'm curious, uh, yeah, say more about, about, about the movie that's coming up and where do, where do you get the money to get a superstar actor on the show? How does that work? Well, um, Seth Green 
uh, so we made a short film uh, in May, and we 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 put it out. Um, and he saw the short film and uh, tweeted about it, and then we started talking, and we had quite a lot of still have quite a lot of calls about all the stuff. But we made our vision pretty clear, and we had a space. He was on it where we talked about what we all wanted to do and what we're doing in the background. You know, I can't disclose everything, but there'll be some announcements. Yeah, uh, you know. As far as the money, um, you know, there's two ways to deal with this. Either you can take a deal really early on, a development deal with the studio, which uh, we've had offered and we've declined those, or you can kind of self-fund to a certain point before you go for like the big, like twenty million dollar budget for production. Uh, so we're gonna we're taking that route. We want to have. It's just a matter of control. How much creative control and input do you want to have? If you go with really early development deal. You have very little, uh, and if you go through the script writing and all of that stuff and the pitching to the studios for financing on production, you have they're buying what you've created. Uh, you don't change much from that point. So, um, yeah, I mean, we're we're going for it. Cool. And last question: what 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 other projects are you out there seeing? Where I feel like you have such a wealth of knowledge about kind of the do's and don'ts of the space. What what other projects are you impressed with? Like, do you think are doing are doing interesting? Uh, things in the NFT space uh, that you think is promising? I I think um, Azuki is probably the strongest. I think uh, they're like the Apple. I, I, I consider them like the Apple of NFT. Like they don't put things out that aren't gorgeous. Uh, the quality is there. And uh, I admire uh, what they've done a lot. I, I own two and um, I'm sure that, you know, they're going to go places. Uh, I'm a passive holder. I just hold them. I don't do anything with them. You know, I don't, participate in the community much but they are doing a fabulous job in my point of view cool cool all right ben thank you very much for coming on the show really appreciate you taking us through the story i think i mean there's so much to what you have built just opening this page and seeing all these different brands you've built and kind of everything that, that that's that, that's been ongoing in your universe it's uh, it's an impressive thing so i appreciate you sharing it with us thank you so much thanks for having me nice to be on <laughs> All right, that is it for this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you would like to help us out, head on over to proof.xyz and click on the reviews button at the very top and leave us a five-star review. Thanks so much. Take care.